me at Jello, Jello. You had me at Jello. You had me at Jello. Oh, you had me at Jello. Hi, everybody. Five o'clock on a Friday. Time, among other things, for Cello Chat. I am very much looking forward to this as always. And especially this week with my guest, Yun Fan. Uh, delighted to have you on the, the interview show, as it were. How are you doing, Yoon? I am doing well. It was so great to hear from you. Uh, I so admire the work you did. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Dr. Wickham was our gracious host for many, many years of our district chamber music retreat and phenomenal cellist and chamber music coach. So we really enjoyed a lot of great time watching you teach and having our students learn from you. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I've always, you know, there, it's like I've, I've worked with quite a few high school programs, as you can imagine, over the years. And the ones that clearly have a, a successful recipe, I just always want to, to find out if they'll share some of their secrets. So I'm looking forward to seeing, because year after year, your program is, uh, is always a, a wonderful one to come and, and work with and what, what, you, what you do with the students. And, but, but let's start with an introduction. If you'll tell about yourself, your musical background to our viewers. Well, I, I feel like I'm a pretty typical public school, you know, product. I started cello in fifth grade in our school program. And I remember being inspired to play strings. My neighbor across the street, Robert, played viola and he would babysit me. So I remember listening to him practice his viola and I just loved the sound of the viola. So it's highly ironic that I now play cello because when it came time to sign up, I remember talking to my music teacher saying, I want to play viola. And now as a music teacher, I understand that he obviously was desperately in need of cellists because he told me, well, we have enough violas this year, but would you consider playing cello? And I'm like, is it like viola? Because of course I wasn't paying attention during the demonstrations because I had my heart set on playing viola. So um, I was like, oh yeah, if it's like viola, I'll, I'll give cello a try. And I still remember my dad and I going to the music store to rent my cello. And the lady came out from the back and she had this giant instrument. And my dad turns to me and says, you want to play this instrument? It's bigger than you are. And I was like, yeah, dad, of course I want to play cello. Cause of course I wasn't going to admit that I wasn't paying attention in class. Right. Uh, but thank you, Mr. Kamatz, because of him, he is the reason I started down this path to cello. And I've, I, of course I fell in love with the instrument and, and I love viola still, but, um, Cello was definitely the instrument that I was meant to play. So, and then from there, just playing in high school, just grateful for all the teachers along the way who saw that I obviously really enjoyed playing my instrument and encouraged me to like maybe look into taking private lessons, uh, invited me to play in various chamber groups so that I could span my repertoire um, experience. And, and I really want to give a shout out to my high school orchestra director, um, Merle Wagner, he and his wife had their own little chamber music night at their house every Friday night. And every once in a while, they would invite some of the high school students to come play with them. And it was because of that experience playing chamber music with them that I was really exposed to that independence that happens when you have the security of playing in a group in chamber music, but yet still having to really know your own part. And because of that experience, I, I really became very 
quickly um, familiar with the repertoire that was out there. So when I went to college and beyond, I knew a lot of the repertoire I needed to play when I was doing gigs. And so, you know, always forever grateful to Merle and Debbie for giving me that chamber music experience. And I, I think that's one of the reasons chamber music is very near and dear to my heart. You know, I just feel like that's where a lot of my personal growth as a musician has happened. You know, and also, of course, shout out to all of my cello teachers along the way, Ann Balderson, who first started me on cello lessons, and then Nina Ehrlich, who I studied with in high school and then continued to study with at Augustana College, you know, um, Surin Bagratuni at University of Illinois when I went to do my graduate work. Um, so, you know, just wonderful teachers along the way. And, you know, it it was just really neat. I Every time I bring in a clinician, I just love hearing their their way of explaining things you know that will will just tweak a memory going oh my gosh I forgot someone had explained that particular technique to me in that way and I never thought about it you know or I haven't used it in a while and that's a really great technique um just last week actually we were doing our chamber music kind of recitals and one of the technicians was um talking about how when you do string crossings to make them a little smoother to think about being on the inside of the string. And I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't okay. heard about that in years. And I was like, what a great way to think about that. Cause it just, instead of just talking about the mechanics of what you're doing with your arm, just visualizing the inside of the string and being able to rock that direction. I was like, you know, I was like, oh yeah, good stuff that I've forgotten about, you know? So it's really great to keep that self refreshed in your memory. Yeah, outstanding. And, and so now you're at Palatine High School which is a west of Chicago, but you've gradually worked your way eastward. You started out over um, Quad Cities. How, how did your, your career progress after college? Yeah, so it was an interesting path for me. I Teaching has, has been wonderful, and I was never quite ready to leave where I was, and these opportunities kind of presented themselves. So I actually started my career I like to refer to my mascot. So I started in Freeport, Illinois, where I was a pretzel. And that was such a wonderful program. You know, it was in this small town, but there was such a love for the arts there. And conveniently, the junior high and high school were across the street from each other. So even though I taught fifth grade to 12th grade, I had a very easy commute because I was basically teaching three levels in just two buildings. The high school kids walked across the street to the junior high building. So all my secondary classes were in one building. And then I just went to the middle school, which was a five, six building, you know? And so like for teaching such a wide age range, I had very little travel, you know? So it was great. I think, especially for my first experience to be able to see the program from its inception to seeing how the kids evolve over time. And I, that is something I miss in my current position is being able to just build that relationship with kids over a longer period of time. You know, I'm grateful that at the high school level, we do get to see them for four years. But I, when I left Freeport, I, I had taught those kids for six years. So I hadn't quite graduated my fifth grade class, you know? And so there is something for having kids for eight years, you know, before they, they leave you that it's just cool to see how they grow and how not only they evolve as musicians, but as young, you know, human beings, it's kind of fun to see that growth. And so at that time, when I left Freeport, I then went to the Quad Cities where I grew up, but 
worked for the rival school at Rock Island School District instead of where I graduated in Moline. And so that was that was fun, too, because it was a more urban school district. You know, so we had a had a lot of kids that were a little bit more on the lower income side. But one of the things I really appreciate is those kids that oftentimes maybe didn't have a lot of monetary resources. They really appreciated what the arts brought to their lives. And I just feel like they they were so grateful for that opportunity to make music. And they were so grateful for the the impact that arts have on their lives because maybe they didn't have as many other options or as many other creative outlets outside of school. You know, so it really became something that they were so passionate about and that they really committed themselves to. You know, and so that was, again, it was a great school district to work for in terms of fun people to work with, kids that really appreciated the power of music and the arts and um, where it could take them in and outside of themselves. You know, and then through my work with District 211 coaching for that same chamber retreat that I had the pleasure of working with you on, um, there was an opportunity to then go there and work. And so, again, different experience, teach, going from teaching 512 music to only focusing on high school and the demands of doing a high school only program. So I'm very fortunate that my job entails solely working with high school orchestra. Although this year I've kind of stretched my wings into mariachi and I know that kind of uh, talks a little bit about one of the other questions you had. So I'll, I'll hold off on talking about the mariachi a little bit, but I am very fortunate that I get to spend my day teaching orchestra and solely orchestra. So very grateful for that. All right. One other question about your career trajectory. How did you, uh, how did your career pass end up with the administrative component as well? So that's interesting. That is something very specific to this last position I was in. Um, in our particular school district, our department chairs are de- are actually department-based. Like for instance, when I was at Rock Island, we had kind of a the department was foreign language and art and music mm-hmm. and all and English actually all together. So there was one department chair that did all of those categories. And in District 211, we actually have one department chair per department. So it is an administrative and teaching role. So for instance, I, as music chair at my building, I teach four classes a day. And then the rest of my time is spent doing administrative work. So that includes doing evaluations for our staff um, and just the music department. So I, again, I'm, I feel lucky that I have a voice at the administrative table so that I can kind of bring the arts perspective to decision-making as it applies to to the school. And it also gives me better insight into like that bigger picture of where the school district is going so that I can help maybe voice like, okay, how can the arts fit in with some of these larger range planning things that we have too, so that it's not just about maybe some of the core classes. Uh, So that's kind of neat. And so, I know of a lot of other administrative roles that are very heavily on the administrative side. So again, I feel like this is a great fit for me because I still get to teach. I still get to work with kids on a daily basis and I still get to have a voice at the table to maybe help steer some direction, but I'm not doing wholly one or the other. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So your uh, very successful program, one of the questions I always do ask is about 
motivating and inspiring students. And of course, I mean, you know, students are so different, which is great, but it also can mean that it's, it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all answer to this sort of question. But maybe what is your either your general approach or some of your favorites in your, your bag of tricks for helping to keep students not just, you know, playing their instruments, but really on fire about it? Well, a couple of things that I, I feel like are spe specific to the way I like to run my classes is that I really do believe in making sure kids understand the process behind the decision making we make in music. You know, um, I remember oftentimes as a student sitting in orchestra, we would do something and I would ask why. And the answer would be, well, just because or it's because of this, this and that. But then we didn't have a lot of conversation about, well, how could we interpret it differently? which is very different from when you're doing chamber music, right? There's a lot more give and take in terms of like, well, this is how I interpret this. How do you hear this phrase? You know, and again, that's why I'm drawn to chamber music. And so I do like to try to run my rehearsals more like a chamber rehearsal. So we will talk about Boeings and talk about, you know, why do you think this Boeing should be worked like this? You know, technically, how does it work out for us? Stylistically, how does it work out for us? Um, I know a lot of teachers that are like, nope, we give the Boeings to the kids ahead of time. And I understand that that is probably sometimes easier and less frustrating. And I don't do this maybe on all the pieces, but I definitely want to try to give every orchestra at least one piece that we can explore together and do some decision making together um, so that it becomes our interpretation of the piece rather than just like, here's how I hear it. So now you make my vision come to life. Uh, in fact, it was really funny because one of my uh, recent grads, her mom was telling me they were talking over break when she was home and she was like, yeah, so in orchestra the other day, you know, at her college, you know, she asked the conductor some orchestra, uh, some question about how they were doing something in rehearsal um, or something about the music. And she's like, well, how about we, you know, have we and kind of engaging the conversation the way I encourage them to do in class. And the conductor was just like, well, this is the way we're going to do it. And she was just <laughs> rather taken aback because she wasn't used to, uh, you know, like your job in orchestra is to like kind of go with the maestro's, you know, <laughs> interpretation yeah. of it. So that made me feel good. But then I was also thinking, hmm, maybe we should have that conversation about this isn't the way it always works. It's <laughs> <world either. laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, and so the chamber music programs, the chamber music retreat that the, the whole D211 um, string area does each year, that is an integral, integral part of then the way that you um, encourage students to think about their role in, in music making, whether it's, you know, in any kind of music making. Is that true? Yes. Um, I will say, unfortunately, we have actually had to step back from doing mm. a district-wide chamber music retreat, which makes me a little sad. But mm. one of the things that we all truly believe in is the power of chamber music and how it can help really propel student growth. So all of us in the district still do incorporate some sort of chamber unit within our curriculum throughout the school year. Um, and so, you know, and it's fun, like the other day uh, during this past unit, when we did that, you know, the kids are harnessing their technology. I had a group, it was two days before their performance and a kid was out sick. And so she, they 
they Skyped her into their rehearsal, you know? And so she was at home rehearsing with them, uh, you know, and it was, it was just so cool to see that the kids were taking such ownership and pride in their work. And they're really thinking outside the box to, to figure out, okay, well, we can still rehearse together, even though we're not physically in the same space, you know? No. So. Right. And, and of course, leading by example, setting a, a good model is so valuable as well. And another thing that always impressed me really from the very first year that you all reached out to Whitewater, there was already a, a nice uh, bond among the D211 directors. And, you know, it's kind of, it was just a coincidence, right? That you happened to be the, the instrumentation of a string quartet. And then you'd play, you'd rehearse together and, and model the sort of chamber music playing that you were trying to instill in, the, in your students as well. Yeah, I, again, just, you know, I'm so blessed and so fortunate that life has taken me the path it has. And I was able to work with the amazing people that I, I'm so fortunate enough to work with. And it did work out uh, that we had a perfect, you know, string quartet, you know, or quintet as the case may be on certain years. And uh, it was just so much fun. And I think one of the things I really appreciate about my colleagues is that they understand the, the power of modeling for our students. You know, one of the the technique teachers we worked with, you know, I still quote Elspeth to this day, the kids don't know what they don't know, you know? And so until kids really hear what, what nuanced playing sounds like until they hear what a clean shift sounds like until they can hear the difference between how you can put emphasis, you know, or, or um, expression into one single note they don't know how to do that. They can't hear the difference because they've never heard it before. So you need to model that for them if you expect them to actually be able to attain that. You know, so that's why we always felt like, A, it was great for us to model it for them. But B, it's just so gosh darn fun to make music with good musicians, right? I mean, like, we've probably had more fun in our <laughs> rehearsals just goofing around and just trying, like, crazy different things musically um, you know, and I, I still remember like there was one summer that the parent chaperones were walking by and they were prepared to like, you know, get stern with a group of kids who were goofing around because I heard too much laughing coming out of our room and they realized it was us and we were just having so much fun that we were, you know, you could hear our laughter all the way down the hallway. So, you know, so yeah, I, I work with amazing people. Outstanding. Oh, that's, that's so wonderful to have colleagues that you love, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So then how does the um, Monarch Rose Trio, tell me about that ensemble. Oh my gosh. Okay. So, wow, you're doing some digging. That was, I love chamber music. And so when I first moved up to the Chicagoland area, I was just looking for a group to play with. And it turns out uh, of my colleague's daughter, was the violinist and then she happened to know the violist so and the three of us just wanted to do chamber music and so we just kind of put together that group you know we would meet sporadically you know at someone's house and I think this for me was like the learning curve of moving up to the Chicagoland area everything looks close on paper but <laughs> then when you start factoring in traffic and then oh babysitting schedules and you know everybody's kids schedules. It's actually really difficult to meet on a regular basis and have any sort of 
like even full-time ensemble work. Um, but we just really had a good time playing chamber music together. We would occasionally gig and do, you know, the occasional wedding. And, you know, we would just set a couple recitals a year just to give ourselves a deadline. I don't know about you, but I work much better with a deadline. Otherwise I tend to just goof around. So having that deadline of, okay, we need to prepare something to perform in public, you know, was really a great motivating factor for us to really get serious about our practice time because playing together is fun, but there is a difference between just playing together for fun and actually making serious musical growth on a particular piece of music. It's very true. And I think you may be among the, the first people on this series to mention that, but there are definitely a lot of people that need that deadline in order, you know, like the first time it's just fun to play for the, the, the sake of having fun and maybe the second time and maybe the third time. But then after a while, you, you're retreading old ground to feel like you are moving forward. You have to see that point in the future and say, what do we want it to sound like by that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, um, I do want to hear about the the mariachi that you've been doing as well. But I, I'm just kind of curious with, um, I mean, the instrument. I actually originally, when I was in fifth grade, thought I wanted to play violin, but ended up being directed to the cello first as well. But you know how the the, the instrument, neither of us is the first one on this series to talk about how sometimes the instrument also chooses you. And the, of course, as wonderful as the unaccompanied repertoire and then the, the cello and piano, the orchestral repertoire, absolutely all of it, just fabulous and wonderful. But the, the hats that we have to wear as cello players when we're playing in, in a string quartet or some such thing, is that part of what attracts you to chamber music or, or do you think that you would be, you know, um, regardless of, of the instrument that you play, you know, do you find there is a fascination with the, with the, the hats? I, I can't think of a better word for it than, than just the perspectives that you have to have, depending on the line that you're given at a given spot in chamber playing as a cellist. I think maybe it has less to do with the role of cello or the particular line than it has to do with the collaboration aspect. Okay. You know, I, for such an introvert, and I know people who know me are like, you're not an introvert. <laughs> yeah, I actually am a bit of an introvert. Um, but there's something about chamber music that like makes me become an extrovert, you know, and I love the collaborative nature of chamber music, the exchanging of ideas, the like, oh, oh, that's the way you heard it. Like I I wouldn't have interpreted that way. Let's try it you know, that is different than being, and trust me, I I have shivers thinking about many moments on the orchestral stage in front, you know, in a large ensemble playing, you know, Shostakovich five or, you know, whatever it is that is amazing as well. But I think just in the rehearsal aspect and the performance aspect of chamber music, I just feel like there's much more of me as a musician present in the music because I really helped shape that interpretation. So I think that for me is what is really appealing about chamber music. And the other side of it is it's like the closest thing to like soloistically playing that I can tolerate because I love playing, but it terrifies me 
uh, especially when I have to play by myself, you know, and it's, I, I share this with my students all the time. Cause I think like, Oh, like you've done this for forever. Like you don't get nervous anymore when you play it. I'm like, no, like I still like play, even playing something easy in church, you know, I still get butterflies in my stomach and I still kind of have to go through my routine of like breathing. And I still have to prepare to play even something really easy. Like I still have to prepare for that performance so that my performance nervousness doesn't like make me do weird things, you know, or have that shaky bow syndrome or whatever. So, you know, I feel like we, I don't know, my experience as a performer is I never really get over that performance anxiety. And so I don't, I will play solos. I'll play, you know, things, but I don't enjoy it as much as when I get to play with other people. It just, I think I feel that safety net by just having other people with me, you know, when I'm playing. The um, it's interesting though, because I mean, there have been several great, just world-class phenomenal performers who also have reported that, you know, they just, they never get to a point where they, the butterflies go away, you know, Horowitz, for example, you know, but, and so I, I suppose to some people that might sound, oh no, what if I never get to a point where they go away? But then when you see them be able to sit down and make great, great, just stunning music anyway, you know, um, that should be inspiring in and of itself and that you can learn to let the, the music flow regardless of the butterflies. Right. It's less about like not having the butterflies, but how to overcome them or how yeah. to control them enough that you can allow that music to speak. Right. And not here, to let here. it hold you back. So. You're here. And then also with your point, like about Shostakovich five, you are, and correct me if I'm wrong, of course, you are wanting the, the whole orchestra that's playing that, that Shostakovich symphony or whatever it is to have that same wherewithal and awareness and listening in addition to watching of, you know, that their chamber music hat hasn't come off when they're playing in, in a symphony. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm curious, tell me about the mariachi uh, program and, and when did this come about? Yeah. Um, so one of the questions you had actually put down for us to talk about was, you know, maybe some different styles of music and how it has influenced us. Uh, yes. And um, for me, a, a couple of different things. I, you know, one of the thing groups that I really appreciate is like the piano guys. You know, I love how they can mix classical with pop and that, you know, they, they, they make classical music approachable to maybe people who aren't familiar with classical music because of the way they incorporate it with things that are maybe more familiar to their ear. Right. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the things like when we do our chamber music unit, yes, I would like the kids to do more Mozart and to do more Beethoven and to do maybe some of those more standard things. But I find that the kids actually sometimes choose harder technical things based on a song because they really want to play a particular certain pop song, for instance, and they will go out of their way to find an arrangement of it. I had a group with two violas and three violins and no cellos and they found an arrangement you know thank goodness for the internet right um so i i think that flexibility in allowing choice for genres that that people feel pulled to and there's always going to be good technique you can teach with that 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, the mariachi thing is an interesting. Our our school demographics have shifted quite a bit over the last ten years, and we're getting uh, more uh, Spanish speaking students in our building. And mm-hmm. one of our feeder schools actually started a mariachi program, but then there was no place for the kids to go because we did not have a mariachi group or ensemble or anything up at the high school. So we've been working to get that into the curriculum. So last. Last, the last few years, we've started a mariachi club. Um, so that was a way for kids to still continue their mariachi skills that they learned in junior high, not in a class form. And then this year, we actually started the mark, we uh, were able to offer the mariachi class as a curricular class during the school day. So, I mean, for me, as someone who has no experience doing mariachi, like I'm kind of staying one step ahead of the kids, I'm doing lots of my own research and you know, asking lots of questions from my colleagues who have mariachi experience doing a lot of listening, a lot of researching, looking up YouTube videos. Um, but one of the things that that really I appreciate about that music and that style is like, you really have to dig deeper into like the whole, the actual whole performance as a whole, mm-hmm. right? As classical players, like one of the things that I I joke with my students all the time is like, we all look so serious. Like here we are, we're playing Mozart <laughs> and we all look very stoic and we're like concentrating. Right. And we don't look like we're having any fun and we have fun when we play music. And, you know, when you go and you see these mariachi bands, you know, like it, they are all in, they have everything memorized. I mean, there is no inhibition at all in their performance. And so We've been working towards that in our club, but when you only meet once a week, there's really not time to memorize, you know, and, or to be able to, to reinforce the way you need to, to, to memorize, you know, so like we kind of, we're only able to grow our repertoire so far mm-hmm. and then we stop and, you know, all this stuff. So we were able to play and, and we were able to do a few things, but this year, what I found is having it as a class where we can meet every day like we've been able to actually dig deeper into like, what does it mean to like play mariachi music? What does it mean to play stylistically correctly? You know, we're working on some of, and like for mariachi, you actually sing and play at the same time. Not everybody does, but you know, a lot of the band will either join in on the chorus or, you know, and so getting these kids who are not singers to like commit to like singing, you know, I mean, like, I was so proud of them because for the last concert, granted, we did one song, but they sang and they played and, you know, got way out of their comfort zone. You know, for this gringa, you know, I'm learning how to do gritos and, you know, I don't know what I'm saying in Spanish, but the kids are helping me with my Spanish enough. <sighs> I can sing in Spanish. Right. So, you know, for me, it's been a huge learning curve, too. And it's been a lot of fun to do that journey together with the kids. Wow, that's terrific. Outstanding. Well, you know, juggling juggling all the things that you're talking about, it's it's interesting because I mean, of course, there's only so much time in each class period, and it's it can be interesting. I mean, I don't direct any orchestras, but when I go and I visit a whole bunch throughout the course of a year, how various ones will allocate their time, um, you know, and in the end, it can often seem like, uh, like whether you take time out of your your time that you have with them to rehearse orchestral pieces, to have them do chamber music 
or to have them comment on their suggestions for particular bowings of a given passage or their interpretation or something like that might be to other places outside of their realm. No, I have to address this and that's, uh, you know, but um, it's, it's so interesting how often, of course, all the roads do lead towards the, the musical goal that you're after. And in the end, your, your orchestras sound very engaged and, and very good. So hats off to you for that. That's very kind of you. You know, and I think, you know, everyone, it always comes back to like, what is our ultimate goal? And I think we all really want our students to leave us being able to be independent musicians, yeah. you know, and, and I grew up in the age where it was very much, here's the teacher and here's the student and the student just receives this information from the teacher, you know, and it really got my wheels turning when I would ask, I started asking my kids questions, like, why is this an upbow? Why is, and like, they didn't know stuff. They didn't know the basics of like bowing rules, you know? And then I thought about, I'm like, when did I learn it? I don't remember my orchestra teacher, like talking about that, but you know, I kind of like learned that through my chamber music, or I learned it at youth symphony, or I learned it at this music camp. And it wasn't necessarily stuff that I talked about in my daily orchestra class. And so, again, that kind of just started the wheels turning about like, okay, this is important. This was obviously important enough to my musical growth. So I probably need to figure out how to prioritize it in my own teaching, you know, but then something has to go, right? There's not enough time. So, you know, I sacrifice maybe the amount of literature we do. So we do less literature so that we can go deeper. We can have room for discussion, Maybe I, you know, I don't push maybe the depth, the difficulty level as much as I should, especially with my older, older kids, because again, I want, I want to leave space and time for us to like carve out interpretation together. But in order to do that, it's going to be less of me saying, here's how you're going to do it. We're going to kill and drill and, and do like the things that you need to do when you have like a really heavy repertoire driven program. Right. So, and I think in the end, everyone just has to make figure out where they are in that spectrum of balance between difficulty, amount, discussion, you know, how much you want to do of each, you know, and it's hard because there's no one right answer, right? But it's, that makes it fun too. All right, upcoming projects and performances, either either left in the spring semester or, or in the rest of uh, 2022. Uh, so we really, we've done a mo the bulk of our performances. Uh, we added something new this year, which was very exciting. We had a department-wide concert in the gym. So we literally had every band, choir, and orchestra student on the gym floor. And we, again, decided to go short and sweet, right? So we had all the bands playing together, like two songs, choir singing three songs, orchestra doing two songs, mariachi performing one song. And then we did a whole ensemble piece together to, as a finale you know so just a unique experience I think after coming back after not playing together I mean realistically some of our freshmen have not played in almost two years like an actual performance which breaks your heart when you think about it right so we really wanted to give them just something really unique that they can hang on to because we don't know that that's feasible to do a concert like that every year but we thought it was important this year to try to pull something like that together and then um really what we have left orchestrally is just our big final concert so getting kind of the repertoire 
set for that, doing full orchestra. And then actually mariachi is very busy. We have a performance this Thursday for a local fundraiser for our local um, Palatine Opportunity Center. So they've got a full set for that. And then they're playing at the Cultural Fest at the end of April and they're performing on the variety show. So mariachi has actually gotten very busy (laughs) for me. And what about uh, summer or fall? Do you have, or is it just kind of one semester at a time? You know, um, I think there has been talk in our district about maybe trying to do like some summer camp offerings for our students. Um, so we're still trying to navigate all that. I, I know speaking for myself, the last couple of years have been like you're running a thousand miles an hour, trying to stay ahead of all the changes that the pandemic has kind of made us kind of have to pivot. I hate using that word, but because we've overused it so much, but so I kind of felt like we kind of need time to breathe a little bit. Um, So I actually, I think this summer I might offer less for the students so that I can better prepare for the next school year. Cause I feel like next school year will hopefully be a little bit more quote unquote normal of a school year. I think everyone thought this school year was going to be the normal one, but as we saw, there were still mitigations in place there. There were things constantly changing and shifting. So, yeah, I think I want to go into next year with more things kind of set in my mind for what we want to do. So yeah, this might be a a take a break and planning summer for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are good strategic planning. Yeah. And you know, and it's, that's something actually our department did last summer. I, I, every school, district is different, but our school district offers these summer curriculum projects where you can apply to get paid to do work on curriculum. And so as a department, we decided to do one for our music team so that we could have those discussions about like, what is like kind of the marketing plan we want to have for music? You know, what are some big goals that we have that we want to have be unified across the building Uh, or within our department through band, orchestra, and choir, that you don't have time to have these discussions during the school year because you're just go, 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 one thing next. We're running different places. We're just trying not to be in the same room at the same time. You know, so I am so grateful to my team that they were like, you know, we're willing to commit this time in the summer to do the strategic planning. You know, and I want to hopefully someone needs to hear that, that it's okay to maybe put a pause on things that you're constantly doing for the kids because sometimes you do need time to either refresh yourself or to refresh yourself as a department so that you can be more present for your students come fall. Excellent, excellent. Lots of excellent words of wisdom on all sorts of levels. <laughs> and what about, are, are you getting some performance opportunities, either chamber music or orchestral that you're looking forward to? You know, right now, I'm just kind of playing at my church. I, I took a step back with some of the, I had been actually playing with a different quartet for the last several years. And then I had to step away from that just because the workload at, at work was getting so crazy when the pandemic hit um, and all that stuff. So I'm actually looking to get back into performing a little bit more and you know, I'm going to put on a little plug because one thing I am excited about this summer is I'm planning to do the Illinois Comprehensive Music 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 through Comprehensive Music through Performance, the CMP yeah. week long class. And I know CMP started in Wisconsin, where you are, and 
I like for me as an educator, it was such a game changer to really think about teaching and repertoire selection through that, that CMP model. And one of the things I love about that is you get to see lesson plans in all the disciplines. So you see a band, you see a choir, you see an orchestra, you see general music. And I'll be honest with you, some of the, like the best strategies that I have now incorporated into my teaching, I got out of the general music sessions, you know? And so I think for us as, as teachers, we're so great about going to the orchestra sessions, you know, and going to ASTA and going to IMEA and, and doing those things. But I think these, these opportunities like CMP that, that let us work within other disciplines in music, there's so much we can learn from each other, you know, and such, such great ideas and strategies. And, and when you talk about connecting to students through the emotive side of music, like no one does that better than general music teachers, like good general music teachers. So like, I, I think those are the sessions that everybody's like in tears. We're, we're singing the final song after the lesson and like people are crying because they've connected us to the music in such a deep and powerful way. You know, I'm like, that's what I want to do for my kids. Yeah. So but go to CMP. It's an awesome thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's cool to have both, right? To have that sort of experience and then also to have the very string specific uh, string cross to the inside of the string. Aha. You know? Yeah. They're they're um they're all so uh, so inspiring and good to just keep pushing to the forefront of one's musical brain. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, you. This has been a real delight having you on and visiting with you as it always is. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to talk with you too. Excellent. And best of luck with the rest of the semester. Thank you. You as well. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Happy practicing. See you next Friday.